Welcome to our podcast about taking charge of your career. We're happy you could take a few minutes today and join us. We have three executive coaches who are going to talk about some of the actual situations that they've encountered where even in a chaotic and sometimes overly demanding world where things feel out of control, we've worked with individuals who were able to step back and actually take greater control of their career, not waiting for it to happen to them, not hoping and wishing, but actually doing something that had an effect. I'll be um, the moderator today. My name's Mary Crawl. I'm in the Washington, D.C. area and an executive coach there. I'm also joined by Karen. Would you introduce yourself? Yes, I'm Karen Ostrov. I'm a psychologist and executive coach, and I'm based in the Madison, Wisconsin area. And I'm Karen Wilson-Starks, and I'm actually an executive coach and consultant, president of Trans Leadership Incorporated, and I am based in Colorado Springs. So that was kind of a trick question, turning it over to Karen. We have two Karens today, and I'd like to ask Karen Wilson-Starks if, if you'll tee up your um, findings and, and just share with us some of the things you've encountered. Well, you know, a lot of times when we're talking about uh, people in the corporate setting taking charge of their careers, one thing I see a lot of right now is that there's a whole lot of volatility in the corporate world, the corporate VUCA, as it's called. It's called being volatile, uncertain, chaotic, and very ambiguous. So I have one client I'd like to sort of start the conversation with, and his name is um, Jeremy. Jeremy actually is a global operations manager for a global retail-based company. And the area that he's in charge of is really a niche business for very upscale clients in the retail space. And every time I spoke with Jeremy, there would be major changes in his company, major changes in his team, including moving the team a few times from one location to the next. So one day when I talked to him, what was very disturbing and concerning is that some decisions had come down from more senior leadership saying that they were really trying to save money, they were trying to standardize operations, and the standardizations that they put in place would actually long-term ensure that Jeremy's niche business actually fell out of favor. And so I had to help him think about what could he do, because it seemed as though the horse was already out of the barn. You know, what was he really going to, how was he going to function with this thing? So I talked to Jeremy about recognizing that even in comparison to leaders more senior to him in the organization, he actually had more knowledge and more expertise about the niche business than anybody else. So we had to establish him a bit as a thought leader, and then thirdly, we had to think about what was the additional opportunity, possibility, or risk that he could take that he wasn't thinking about. So what that ended up being in Jeremy's case is he realized, you know what, I could still do a business case for what would make the most sense for my part of the business, even though that wasn't what was decided. So he did that. He created a business case floated it back up to senior leadership, and they actually changed direction for his part of the business. And that's an example of, you know, helping a client really step up 
in a difficult situation where it's fast-paced, constantly moving, and where it seems like it's too late. So let me just ask you guys, have, have you run into that as well with your clients? Well, you know, um, Karen, this is Karen Ostrov now talking. Um, this is, this is, what comes to mind as I listen to you is a client of mine who is, um, she's in academia, and she's what I would consider to be a pretty high flyer in that she has gone through the, um, climbed the ladder in the academic um, world fairly quickly. She's uh, had a very big and early successes in getting tremendous amount of funding for her particular niche area in research. And she's, um, I guess she would be considered to be a, probably a Gen Xer or maybe just kind of in that shoulder between boomers and Xers where she's technologically very savvy person, yet at the same time some of her values are more of that of an older generation. But as it is, she's a very fast-paced person in a traditionally slower-paced kind of academic world compared to the corporate world. However, she has been extremely interested from the get-go of taking charge of her own career only to find that she's been met with many, many political and unexpected twists and turns, um, a lot of snakes in the grass in other members, uh, snakes in the grass of people that are other members of her department that do not want to see her advance as quickly as she's advanced. So for her to take charge has not been um, a solo um, endeavor for her compared to experience that she had kind of putting herself on a track to get her Ph.D. Post-Ph.D. in the real world working in academia, she has found that she needs to build more relationships among other academics, some of whom, as I've already mentioned, are not particularly interested in seeing her advance through the promotional ranks of associate and then assistant professor and finally full professor. So at the point that we are at now, a fair amount of my work with her is in helping to encourage her to uh, develop more um, team teaming and colleagueship and collaboration among the various members of her department in in order to build strong bonds that will lead to um, the all important votes when she's up to be considered for tenure to be full professor. She has um, not exactly been reluctant. It's more that she had no awareness and very little knowledge on how to go about building collaborations with people in her department that are all important. In other words, if you don't have those um, collaborations, um, you're leaving your, you know, you, she's leaving herself wide open, and have found has found out the hard way that she's left out. She's not recommended to be on a committee or be head of a committee. As I said, the snakes in the grass. 
So our work has been about developing the skills, practicing skills, running experiments, and then continuing to talk with me throughout the whole process to get to a level where she's now experiencing uh, several years into this uh, work together, she's experienced a fair amount of success in um, building collaborations with those that originally had been very uh, against her um, making progress through you academic know, Karen, life. That, that's really interesting because it really reminds me of another client I probably should mention as well because you're focusing right now on building relationships and in an environment that's a bit competitive and right. where sometimes it's difficult to build those relationships. And I have a client like that as well, and that, that client is Doug. Doug is a plant manager. He's also in a global uh, business or company, but it's a manufacturing company. And one of the things he had a tendency to do was to c- kind of be too much of an advocate for a direction or an idea that he thought was the right thing to do. And what was interesting about this is Doug is very smart, He's he's um, great in operations, so his ideas were actually very good ideas. And the company was going through a period of real um, um, challenge. They were trying to save money, and they were losing money. They were trying to earn more money. And so one of the ideas he had is that they had a vacant warehouse. And he thought there was a great way that they could use that warehouse that would save the company a lot of money rather than renting some space that they were, you know, using elsewhere. However, some of the other stakeholders in his workplace really thought the warehouse should be used for something else. So normally what Doug would do, he would go in, advocate real hard for his position, and, you know, not spend a whole lot of time listening. So a lot of what we had to do was, first of all, think about, okay, who are the major stakeholders? So we had to create a stakeholder map about, you know, his territory, who's out there. Then we had to talk about who's the priority in terms of who he wanted to reach first and why. And then thirdly, he had to practice really listening to understand the other person's point of view, which in Doug's case really required him to learn to ask more open-ended questions. And through this process, what he discovered was that they weren't as far apart as he had originally thought that they were, and there really was an opportunity then to partner with them more than he thought there was. So they really were able to co-create what I call the third solution, the win-win solution that neither one of them thought of on their own. So they were able to get to that, co-create an agenda, move forward, and then propose to the organization a way to use the vacant warehouse that took into account everybody's issues. And the way that Doug normally would have done it, he wouldn't have done that. You know, Karen, it makes me, brings to mind um, another client, which is uh, Carol, who's a director of marketing at a a global manufacturing company. Very similar to what you're talking about. In Carol's situation, uh, she, to be an effective uh, director of marketing, she needed to build relationships, and she's fairly new to the company. She'd only been there about seven, eight months when I was introduced to her, and she had to quickly build relationships. So we developed a relationship map, and she began to use this map in a very strategic, deliberate way, rather than just kind of who should I talk to and very random and 
my goodness, you know, it's a global company, so you, you can't just go have a cup of coffee with someone down the hall. She had to be very strategic and deliberate about the relationships that she's building. And this was one very important key way that she, Carol, is working to take charge of her own career. I think the importance of a stakeholder map um, just can't be underestimated, and it seems like something so simple to do, and yet people are too busy to do it. They don't think about it as often as I would hope they would. Mm-hmm. Um, I have one of my clients who actually I'm a little worried about because um, she is used to advocating very hard for her position, a lot like um, one of the gentlemen we've been discussing already. And she became polarized from another member on the senior executive team. And what would happen is my client would always, always advocate for the new technology, a more strategic um, approach to something, taking more risks, doing things differently, and then there was another member of the executive team who always then would take a 180-degree position against her, always sticking to the tried and true, never departing from the traditional, always being risk-averse. And so this executive team really couldn't get off the dime, and it was because each one of them was defending their own kind of default position and didn't really think of each other as stakeholders, you know, that there really had to be some give and take. And unfortunately, they worked for a leader who didn't foster a lot of discussion or collaboration. He kept people fairly in silos, I'd say. Well, unfortunately, the CEO was deposed recently by his board, and with him went the more conservative person. So now my client remains on the executive team. They're getting ready to hire a new CEO. And I'm worried about her because I think she thinks she won. You know? <laughs> and, and I can tell that that's not exactly how it works. Um, so it's important not to be misled by a one-shot success. So I am hoping that as we go forward with the replacement for her opposition and a new CEO, we can get off to a different start. And I'm really going to take a page out of both of your books and use very explicitly a stakeholder analysis. Mm-hmm. So, Mary, in your case, what else do you think your client really needs to learn? I mean, since it's not, let's say, a win and someone else has lost, what are the next steps for, for, for her to learn, would you say? Well, I think her next steps, well, it's ironic because she has been assigned half of the duties of the departed person. Oh, man. She's got to walk a mile in that person's shoes. Okay. So I think her job is going to be to learn exactly what that was all about and what kind of fostered some of the frustrations and obstacles she ran into And I think it's humbling for her. I mean, it's only been about four weeks, so hard to say what it's going to end up as. But so far, I think she's humbled by how big the job is and how long it takes to get your hands around it. So um, I think her first job is going to be identifying who are her stakeholders 
in her new expanded role because it changes, and then prioritizing them. And just as you say, have a real conversation, open-ended, about I'm new to a role, this is a really different role, what do you think is going to make us be able to work more successfully together, what are some of your frustrations from the past, what would you like to do in the future, and really before committing to anything, understand the perspective of the people she's meant to interact with. You know, Mary, that's interesting because that, that now reminds me of, of a third case I'd like to share about, which is um, the situation of Sue. Sue is actually in Shanghai, and she's, the, in a, she's also in a global company. She's the, an HRVP, and, and it's a global financial services organization. But she has a direct report who's an older male who's in Japan and who's Japanese, and the very different cultures very different approaches, and they're working in a virtual context. And the Japanese company was an acquisition. So the, she has the issue of this is a new direct report to her, um, gender dynamics, cultural dynamics. And in, in the past, what she would do, kind of similar to all the people we've been talking about before, she would go in and say, okay, here's what I need you to do. And a lot of this was driven because the company was saying, we need to get everybody on the same page, doing the same thing. We don't want to have, you know, 20, 30 different HR, you know, programs all across the globe. However, her her direct report, he would say, okay. But then when she would follow up with him, let's say the next month or whatever, he hadn't really implemented the new plans or the new ideas. And she didn't really understand why he hadn't done it. So I think the work I had to do with her was have her really think about how does she keep her direct report in the driver's seat rather than kind of like being in charge herself. So similar, Mary, to even your client, she had to kind of walk a mile in his shoes in the sense of, again, listening to understand. In other words, here's what's coming down, you know, from corporate. Here's what we're expected to do. However, what I want to find out about from you is um, what's unique about your environment? You know, how will this play, you know, in Japan? What are some of the challenges that you're, you may run into there? And given that this is what's been um, it's being passed down to us and what we're having to implement, how would you go about doing that? So rather than just telling him, really asking him to think it through. And through that process, she learned some unique aspects about Japan. She also learned some strengths that they had and some approaches that the whole corporation could use. And she also learned what were the barriers. And they were able to also engage a little bit in the co-creation of thinking about how can we position some of these changes so that the people who are having to implement them see what's in it you know, for them and moving forward in a very different way. So in her case, she had one stakeholder she had to think about and she had to, in essence, apply the same things we're talking about in a bigger picture level, but to this one person who was her direct report. And if she went told the boss on it, it wouldn't have worked. You know, this gets me thinking, Karen, about um, we're talking about, and Mary, we're talking about various companies, corporations that are working um, on a global scale. It brings to mind uh, how we provide services to um, smaller companies as well, not as uh, perhaps
perhaps not publicly traded, perhaps not on the global scene. I'm thinking about um, a financial services company that I'm working with that's far, far smaller, but have taken charge of your career issues and concerns. And I think that our listeners might be interested in hearing about the kind of work that we do, and I'll give mine as an example, that addresses the same kinds of issues but on a different scale. So, for instance, I'm working with a gentleman who is in his mid-60s, and 40 years ago he, he started his own financial planning organization. And he's built it up, and he continues to work in it full-time, and he's very successful. He's now brought on a, um, a family member, a nephew, who he is t- intending to groom to be a successor. And the challenges that he's facing is for is to identify what the competencies are in his nephew, identify first his own competencies, <laughs> and then be able to help his nephew develop those whole series of competencies that will then allow this man, the founder, eventually down the road to to reduce his schedule and eventually let go and hand the company over to his younger relative. It's an enormous task. Um, and he, the gentleman um, who's 64, informed me that there are thousands and thousands of companies just like his throughout the entire United States. And that's just in one sector, financial financial planning services. That this kind of transition from boomers to Gen X, Gen Y, Millennials is is happening on a macro level. And then we have the unique opportunity to help individual companies on a more, I'll say, micro level go success, successfully go through business transitions from both the, uh, from the, the emotional, psychological, and um, business-related um, vantage points. So you know, um, uh, good Mary, point. Karen's I think the about... smaller organizations have a much bigger challenge. It's ironic because you would think it's smaller, it should be easier, but it's actually harder. If it's a large corporation, they may have identified two or three or five potential successors and they spend some effort developing all of them, and then they just get to pick the one that's most successful. Right. In a smaller Very organization, you wind up putting all your eggs in one basket, right. and you've got to make that work. Well, here, with this, with this gentleman, he has chosen his nephew because the nephew's a go-getter. He's a good rainmaker. He's bright. He's energetic. He also already has a family to support and a home. You know, he needs to make money. But the founder wonders about what's going to happen to his clients who've been with him from the beginning and have grown. He's seen them through all of their life cycle events. Now they're all in their 60s and 70s and 80s. He's a little bit afraid, for good reason, to just hand this over. Will these people have their financial planning needs addressed? Is his nephew, he said, you know, he said, my nephew's only seen a um, 
bull market. He's only experienced the bull market. How's he going to cope with the inevitable bear markets? Mm. Mm-hmm. Realistic you know, concerns. They and are he realistic said, you know, he, he 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 said, you know, I've been to seminars and they're talking about this issue of the founder the founder syndrome. The founder won't let go, and I understand it. And I understand it enough to know there's good reasons why founders are holding on. And it's not just because they don't know what else they'll do with themselves. It's not just because their ego involved. They also have concerns about the client base that they've built up. And what will what will will these people be served well? You know, I think that some of our clients they've they've been very good at just going out and and doing the work and getting it done. When we talk about transition and succession planning, there's another skill that's involved there, which is really the the mentoring and the coaching and the educating of the next generations of people coming along. And I think that's where we sometimes can be very helpful because sometimes it's so clear to them what they know. They take it for granted, and they don't imagine that some of these skills they've developed that this is really almost like a curriculum in terms of how do you prepare, how do you train, how do you um, get the nephew, for example, ready to, to step into these shoes or whoever ready to step into the shoes. And they forget that they can facilitate even the relationship connection. They can tell the stories of how did we get through the tough times, what were some of the things we had to do. And so I think sometimes we have to remind our clients of that other piece, which is not just me doing it, but how do I facilitate someone else learning to do it. Mm -hmm. And to your point earlier about how can we encourage our clients to take more charge of their own careers, if I'm the junior person in a situation like that, Maybe I can't take charge of it, but I can trigger the curriculum building experience by asking questions. You know, yes. How did how did you yeah. do this? Tell me the story of how this happened. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me how you developed this client? Where did you meet this client? What's been the most successful or the most um, risky intervention you've done with a client? You know, you can sort of be a career journalist almost, getting the mm-hmm. true scoop behind it. And I don't think that's a substitute for getting training and development by your senior people, but sometimes it's a good reminder to them. Yeah, I like that, Mary, because it also, in our role, we then also help, let's say, that more junior client think of the kinds of questions they could ask and the ways they could frame them. And even sometimes they could be quite proactive in creating their own, if you will, development program, so to speak, mm-hmm. you know, that the seniors might not even think about. I think but, um, professional associations used to be a good bridge for that. And I don't know why. I don't see people as active in it anymore. But for the folks that I've found, financial planners, psychologists, accountants, the ones who have been able to find a niche or a tribe within a professional association, start to do a little bit of that. You know, they Mm -hmm. start to feel that um, they can take a little charge of their own development and their own education. You know, it's not terribly unlike what we've done ourselves, doing our own. Yeah, that's what comes to mind, the 
that we've found each other, among other people in our professional association, but the three of us are here today talking about cases as a direct outgrowth of the years that we have spent meeting on a regular, consistent basis monthly to share and help each other develop and keep stimulated and and get new ideas and input, and it's uh, been a rich source of development, you know, professional growth. I suppose then one point that's really important then, um, Karen and Mary, is this. When we're working with our clients is the whole idea that you get next step development, information, training, education from multiple sources. Some will be within your company and organization. Some will not. And you may have to take the lead in finding what those opportunities are and um, and just and being a leader and going after it. I agree. And And one of the values I find in my executive coaching meetings is helping an individual, professional, emerging leader, developing leader kind of sift and winnow, mm-hmm. you know, look at – bring in resources, and then talk through what are the ones that would really make sense to devote time to, go after mm-hmm. a meeting or a webinar or something to read, and what may actually be too tangential and probably mm-hmm. would take that person afield. Or by the same token, oftentimes I'll talk with a, uh, a client of mine about a seminar they attended or program, and they'll come back and tell me, you know, this wasn't worth my time because mm-hmm. I had gone in, like, for instance, I'd gone into the meeting, I might say, expecting to come out with, you know, five new business cards, and instead I just kind of had one drink and got out of there really quickly, kind of slunk out because I just didn't see that there was anybody I could connect to. So that means one of one way of taking charge of your career, many people are really not so great at, networking and, and various, you know, venues, the, the happy hours and this kind of thing, the early morning meetings that are put on by chambers. Um, and they need practice and help and guidance on how to have an, a strategic, effective networking time. So it's worth their while, especially well, if they've asked people. their spouse to take the kids to daycare that day so they could go to um, an executive uh, happy hour, or not a, you know, a breakfast in the morning or stay later for a happy hour, the spouse is going to be at the door with the frying pan saying, so, did you make some contacts? <laughs> I'm not making this up. This is, this is true. So maybe it's not a frying pan. Maybe it's a crock pot. But there's some heavy kitchen appliance that's waiting when um, the spouse has been overly burdened. <laughs> with the child care yeah, think, in hopes that the that the husband or wife or partner will, you know, be able to network to find the next opportunity or that kind of thing. You're bringing up something really important, Karen, which is this, because I don't think one size fits all and for people. And I'm going to go back to something, Mary, you said about being strategic, because some clients might need to go to a networking meeting, but other clients, that's the last place they need to be. That's not what's going to be the next best value for them and what they're doing. So it's helping our clients identify the types of um, next step development, what it looks like. Is it networking or is it something else? Is it a skill building thing? Um, is it about leadership or is it about the technical part of their job? And when they go to this meeting, having in mind what is it in advance that they're trying to get out of it, if you will. 
so that, again, it's everything strategic, everything, you know why you're there and what you're trying to accomplish. Yes, yeah, I agree with I you. I agree. Sequencing is important. You know, doing the next right thing mm-hmm. makes a big difference. And that's Absolutely. different for each individual. Absolutely. And sometimes as executive coaches, we're more directive and might say, this would be a good thing for you to do, you know, that directive. And other times we're somewhere more on the continuum of, you know, what do you think or try, what have you thought about to to try out? What makes sense to you for the next step? So Mm -hmm. we have both a, I find that I use both. There are times when I'm, quite directive and other times when I'm very facilitative. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I know our time is winding down a little bit, so I'm wondering what hasn't been said yet um, by any of us that we think is important to put out there? With regard to the topic of well, yeah, taking charge of to your career? Yes. Boy, we've, we've gone from talking about, we've <laughs> talked about negotiating for um, promotion work, we've talked about um, dealing with being um, innovative in a more structured environment and how to handle that. Talked about networking. So Have we actually final? covered the waterfront today? Well, <laughs> there's always more on the waterfront, but I guess what I'm asking is what, what's, what do you want to leave people with, given that we've covered so much of the waterfront? What are some wrap-up comments? Well, I guess I have one, and I, it's, one that I learned early in my career that people told me. They said, this is important work, and I think that's true no matter what your career field is, and never go out alone. Mm. Nobody's going to have a career in which they're going to come up with all the brilliant ideas on their own, and you really do need to reach out to different people throughout your career, and they're valuable to you as guides, as sounding boards, um, and so if there's only one thing you can do about your career, you should have a conversation with somebody about that. Start there. Don't try and run your career on your own. Great. Thanks, Mary. What about That's you, really Mary? That's really beautiful. Yeah. I think that um, paralleling um, – well, no, let me put it this way. I think what's really beautiful about the time – the times that we're living in, is that it's become so much more acceptable for people to to say to each other, yes, I'm making some changes in how I'm going about uh, working. I'm working smarter, and I'm taking advantage of the opportunity to work with an executive coach. Unlike the stigma that has plagued our society related to sharing that you're taking advantage of psychotherapeutic services to better your relationships or understand yourself better. There's always been a taboo and a stigma unless you live in New York City. (laughs) The rest of the country is pretty much under wraps. Executive coaching is not like that. It's seen as coaching, talking to someone on the sidelines as if you're an athlete. An athlete would never play his or her sport without a coach on the sideline to confer with before going back out on the field. And similarly, I think it's one of the the best analogies to the kind of work we do. We help people think things over and figure out their plays, 
mentally before actually going out there and physically executing on what it is that they're going to do. Okay. And I think what I would like to share with people is I know many times our clients, when they come to us, they're a little stuck. They have some ideas, but often they're focused on what they can't do or what's not working. And I think that our job is really to help them to manage the emotions that go with feeling stuck so that, therefore, they can begin to see greater options and then to create a positive pathway forward. I think that's a lot of what we're doing is we're helping Mm -hmm. to create a positive pathway forward, open up the options. And it sounds like open up options and open up energy, you know, energy. That's the emotional part when you can – Help with the emotional part. It frees up the energy so you can yeah. see the options and then fuel the options, if you will. Yeah, fuel the <laughs> options with really freed up, be, help people re-energize. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So if I was to summarize all of this, I think what we're saying is certainly you're not alone, so get help from multiple places and, and in fact, refuse to go out alone. We're also saying treat yourself like an elite athlete. Get a high-quality coach. Uh, practice your swing before you get out on the golf course, so to speak. (laughs) And then also just remember, there are positive pathways forward that maybe you don't see right now, but they do exist. So I want to just thank our audience for being with us today. I'm Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks from Trans Leadership in Colorado Springs, and I'm joined by... Karen Ostroff, President of Connect Consulting, LLC, based in Madison, Wisconsin. And Mary Crawl here in Washington, D.C. So we all thank you and join us next time. All right. Bye-bye. I like it. (laughs) I like it. I like it.